This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Who is the greatest athlete in the world right now? You could answer that question a dozen ways, but personally, I'm going to go ahead and argue that it is Serena Williams. Here are the facts. Serena Williams is the number one tennis player in the world and has been for 259 weeks. She is the reigning champion of the Australian Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, and the WTA Tour Championships. She has won four Olympic gold medals. And she's dang nice about it. Here's the interview that Serena gave on the court at Wimbledon this summer, mere minutes after demolishing rival Gabine Muguruza. In this interview, Serena is holding the giant silver trophy plate and is still breathing hard from the hour-long match. Still, when she's asked about how she's feeling, here's what Serena graciously says. Gabine, she played so well. I didn't even know it was over because she was fighting so hard in the end. I was like, okay, we do have to serve again. So congratulations. Don't be sad. You'll be holding this trophy very, very soon. Believe me, you're a great champ. So. Earlier in the week, Williams had played the number three women's tennis player in the world, Maria Sharapova. As usual, Serena won. Yeah, the number this is once more in this rivalry. Sharapova has to bend the knee to this great champion. Serena winning the match against Maria Sharapova is no surprise. Serena has won matches against Sharapova 16 times in a row. In case the gap between the number one tennis player in the world and the number three tennis player isn't clear, consider how the last time Sharapova won against Serena was in 2004. That was more than 10 years ago. Serena has been trouncing her ever since. So it's weird then that Maria Sharapova, not Serena Williams, is the one who brings in the biggest endorsement deals. Endorsements from companies like Nike and Adidas are where athletes make their big money. So let's break down the numbers. In 2014, Serena Williams earned $11 million in endorsements. Sharapova earned $22 million, double Serena's endorsements. The reality of this is not lost on Serena. In a New York Times interview this summer, she noted the clear difference between her body, Serena Williams, of course, is black and ripped with big, beautiful muscles, and Sharapova, who's white and blonde and smaller. Asked about how she feels being the number one tennis player, bringing in fewer endorsements than the number three ranked player, Serena said, if they want to market somebody who is white and blonde, that's their choice. I have a lot of partners who are very happy to work with me. I can't sit here and say I should be higher on the list because I have one more. I'm happy for her because she worked hard too. There is enough at the table for everyone. Let's pause for a moment to appreciate the brilliance of that line. How often do you hear a world-class athlete, someone whose life is competition, ambition to be the very best, speak with such compassion? There is enough at the table for everyone. While Serena Williams is the number one tennis player in the world, her relationship to the sport of tennis has always been complicated. There's the endorsement money thing, but there's a lot more than that. During her whole career, tennis fans and commentators have policed Serena for being who she is. They've criticized her body, her style, even her commitment to the sport. Officials seem to be harder on Serena than on other players. Last year, Serena called out a Russian tennis official who made a nasty comment about Serena and her sister Venus actually being brothers. 
The sisters' biggest statement came after a particularly vicious incident. In 2001, at the Southern Californian Indian Wells Tournament, the crowd lobbed racial insults at Serena and her dad after Venus dropped out of a match against her due to an injury. In response, the sisters boycotted Indian Wells for 14 years straight, finally returning this spring. The boycott was a powerful statement to the overwhelmingly white world of tennis. Instead of looking the other way when somebody hurled racial epithets, Serena refused to return to a tournament that didn't deserve her. Poet Claudia Rankine described Serena this way in a New York Times cover story this summer. She said, The word win finds its roots in both joy and grace. Serena's grace comes because she won't be forced into stillness. She won't accept those racist projections onto her body without speaking back. She won't go gently into the white light of victory. Her excellence doesn't mask the struggle it takes to achieve each win. Serena Williams is a shining example of the contradictions in sports. As a feminist, watching sports is complicated. There are these heroic, talented, artistic players like Serena. But the culture of sports has many dark sides. Racism, violence, greed. There's a real tendency among feminists to dismiss sports altogether. You know what I mean? To say, oh, I don't like sports. Sports are dumb. There are many, many criticisms to be made of sports, and we'll explore a lot of them on today's show. But dismissing all sports offhand as dumb is just silly. It harkens back to high school, you know, when you felt like you had to choose a clique between jocks and the nerds. But those stark divisions don't help anyone. That's not how real life works. I'm a book nerd who likes running. When I jog a 5K, my headphones are playing NPR, okay? Sports can be healthy and positive in community building. Talented athletes are up there with the brilliant artists of the world. But that doesn't mean we should turn away from the ugliness and greed and violence that's wrapped up in the culture of sports. Football fans can't overlook the way the NFL and NCAA deal with sexual assault. Soccer fans can't ignore the way FIFA engages in corruption and wantonly discriminates against women. Today's episode explores those conflicts, the emotional, tumultuous experience of being a feminist sports fan. Let's go. The biggest sport in the United States is football. Hockey, soccer, basketball, ultimate frisbee, they all pale in comparison to the old pigskin. Actually, American football has the highest average game attendance of any sport in the entire world, with 17.6 million people attending an NFL game every year. And there's no bigger football state than Texas. The University of Texas at Austin College football team, that would be the Longhorns, are worth more than any other team in the league. That college football cash cow is worth $131 million. Feminist writer Jessica Luther lives right in the heart of Texas football country, and she's a big football fan herself. Hi, this is Jessica Luther. I'm a freelance journalist living in Austin, Texas, and I write on sports. When she's not organizing pro-choice protests at the state capitol or busily blogging for Vice Sports, Jessica Luther is likely watching a football game. She's hard at work right now on a book about violence in sports culture. 
an especially critical topic given the pattern of domestic abuse and sexual abuse seen among college and pro football teams. Here's our conversation. Well, Jessica, I know you're working on a book that has something to do with violence and sports culture, but that's basically all I know about it. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is you're researching and what you're interested in exploring that relates to violence and sports? Sure. The book is actually pretty specific. It's college football and sexual assault and that intersection. Uh, I'm writing it at Akashic Books with Dave Zirin. He has a new sports and culture imprint, and he originally just sort of asked me to write a general book about the intersection of sports and, and sexual violence or violence against women. And it, I was like, there's too much to say. So I narrowed it down to college football um, and sexual assault. And it's a thematic look. So I am, I'm looking at cases across time, like the earliest one that I was able to find was 1974, I think at Notre Dame, and sort of all the cases that I was able to find across time and what patterns I pulled out of that, but also the way schools respond, the way the media respond, the total lack of response from the NCAA, um, stuff like that to try to look at the patterns that come out of this in order to start a conversation about how we change that pattern. So you spend, I assume, all day long knee deep in really terrible research about the worst thing that could happen. And so I'm interested sort of what you're exploring there. What sort of patterns have you seen emerge when you look at the history of violence related to college football? Yeah, I do spend a lot of time. I actually, one of the biggest struggles for me on the book is the editing process. It's hard to go back into it and revisit the topic once you feel like you've said something um, because there's a lot of sort of emotional work that goes along with reading hundreds of cases. So I've located over 110 cases since 1974, which is not a huge number um, across time, but there are, you know, this this kind of crime in particular is massively underreported. Um, These are cases of sexual assault by fo- college football players. And so they, it ranges from accusations all the way to people who've been convicted. Most of it, of course, is just accusations because very few cases make it to charges or even especially to uh, conviction. And one of the things that I found that I, you know, and there's nothing really scientific about my work, so it's hard to say. Um, There's probably a lot of cases I haven't been able to find just because of the way that um, my limits to research on my own. But one of the things that's kind of alarming is most of the cases involve multiple football players, um, most of them as perpetrators, multiple perpetrators in an incident, but also you get uh, witnesses to the crime. Um, or maybe even accessories, I guess. So one of the things that's kind of scary about it is the idea that this is taking place, that there are multiple players from the same team who are engaging in um, acts of violence together, which is a particular thing I'm interested in because of team culture. Um, And, you know, this is something I think a lot about with fraternities and sort of that kind of all, you know, very masculine space, right? Some of the other stuff that I've looked at is the way that universities don't really do much about it um, or actively try to not talk about it. This is one thing that I really am interested in is sort of the fact that the NCAA, which is the governing body of all collegiate sports, um, just doesn't seem to care at all about this. So like when you read the recruiting manual for you know, a college football player, when he's being recruited, it is so there, what coaches can and cannot do is so 
specific, like we're talking like time limits of how long they can talk to them on the phone. Um, you know, very specific stuff. And then when it comes to whether or not sex can be used in recruitment, there's like kind of just a nothing in the, in the book. And you think, well, you could do something. Um, and so I look at those sort of points in time um, that just repeat over and over and over again in, in so many cases. And so one thing that's interesting, I think, about your perspective is that while you're looking at really the worst side of sports, you're also a sports fan. You're a big football fan. So can you tell me about being a football fan and how you counter those two different realities? The fact that uh, that these horrible crimes are able to be done in part because of the culture that football creates and being a part of that culture and loving the game. Yeah, I think a lot about my own consumption of sport, um, especially college football. I have this sort of really sad encyclopedia in my head of coaches and teams and specific players. And I know all of them. And I'm sort of the Debbie Downer of the group. If we're, <laughs> like, I'm with people and we're watching and I'm like, oh, well, that's the guy that did this thing. And, you know, I'm, uh, and so it's something I'm actively aware of all the time while I'm consuming sports at this point in time. I can't shut that off. Um, at the same time, I still re- really love watching. Uh, part of it is that it's um, just something I've done my entire life. And sort of changing that kind of pattern in your own life can just be a difficult thing to do. At the same time, um, I feel like we all can relate to the way that we compromise as, you know, women moving through the world. Um where our limits are, right? And I, at this point, I'm not sure exactly where my limit is with football. I definitely watch it much less than I used to, but I still watch it. I love athleticism. I love competition. I love watching what these people can do and how they do it and how they do it as a team. Like all the sort of good things about sports I still really care about. Um, But there is sort of a constant nagging in my head but at the same time I go to movies all the time that have people in them that I have issues with and I just sort of put that to the side while I'm consuming it and then go back to tweeting about it later or something to that effect (laughs) so it's not as if I don't already have the skills to consume problematic material and still enjoy it so I think it's just it's getting harder to do it but I still like to watch sports what what brings you back to watching football still? What what do you love about football specifically? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I do... There is just like the straight-up athleticism. I mean, oh, I'm trying to remember who it was last... There was a guy last weekend who did the most amazing route. He was running, and he did this kind of weird flip thing in the air, and kept going and I watched the vine of it like a hundred times like I am so interested in people's abilities to move like I'm really interested in the human body and how people can do sort of what look like superhuman feats to us um yeah and I I think a lot of the problems that that we're discussing here so the the ability to um sexually assault somebody get away with it and even have that behavior be uh be praised, be, you know, people saying like, guys sharing photos and saying like, that's sweet, that's cool. That's created by the culture around sports. And that culture is clearly something that we need to change. D- 
you think that that ties into the sport itself? Like, is this a football problem because of the way football is? Or is it just that this that football has this place in American society where it has the infrastructure built around it that allows these things to happen? I think it's more the second. I do, I'm sort of a structuralist generally on stuff like this. So I do think that it happens to be that that's our most popular sport. And for all those reasons, the sort of system works in their favor when it comes to um, these kind of crimes. You know, I think sport in general, in the same way that like a fraternity space or the military that's also, you know, heavily men and very masculine, um, creates a sort of specific space that that violence can happen and be covered up and minimized. Um, You know, I don't know if that's, I don't think that's special to football as a sport outside of the fact that football is incredibly powerful as an, as a cultural institution. Um, I don't, you know, I, I sort of don't know what to think about the brutality on the field versus the brutality off the field. I don't, we don't really have any, you know, statistics. We have such bad statistics just with sexual assault generally. Um, it's not hard to imagine that the, mi- the messages are incredibly mixed, uh, especially, I mean, I, I work on college ball, right? And so I'll look at, you know, recruits who are 17-year-old kids and they have teams that recruit them by photoshopping their picture onto the magazine, like a fake People magazine cover of them arm in arm with like Beyonce, you know. And the implication is like if you come here and play football for us, you will your reward will be fame and women, right? Um, and then I'm going to put you on the field and tell you that your job is to go beat up people, um, and we're going to cheer you for it. Like, you know, there's a lot going on there in this particular sport, especially when we're talking about young men, um, that could be very specific to it. But I do think there is something bigger about the fact that football is so powerful as a cultural institution that goes sort of above and beyond it as a particular sport. So so as a football fan and somebody who's critical of the culture on the sport that leads to violence, what do you think you can do as a fan and we as the collective fan base can do to help change the culture of the sport? Or is the culture not something that fans can change? It's got to be something that comes from the top, from NCAA officials and uh, people who actually have the money here. I mean, this is the hardest thing, is that, you know, there's a lot of push for, like, coaches should teach players and I'm not a real advocate of that. I worry about people who are raised in the exact culture we're trying to change as being the uh, leaders in changing that culture. I think that that is just um, naive in a lot of ways. We see too many instances where coaches are happy to look away. Or I, I think a lot about there was a case um, last year outside the lines at ESPN did two major profiles of the Missouri Athletic Department involving multiple football player cases. Uh, And sort of after the second one came out, there was a press conference and they asked the head coach, Gary Pinkle, like, what are you, what are you guys doing, you know, to maybe stop this or do something? And he was like, Oh, well, there's a coach who talks to the guys sometimes. And it was like, could you be less specific about what that even means? Like why this guy and what is he saying? And how often does he say it? Um, Oh, what can fans do? I don't know, man. I I think I'm a writer, right? And a tweeter. And so part of it is just to continue to yell about it. I I think teams, 
in this age of social media have no choice but to respond in some way when it becomes a thing. Um, you know, and I see the power in that. I recently had a piece that I wrote at Texas Monthly with my friend Dan Solomon about a specific case at Baylor. And, you know, it, it blew up really fast into national news. And within days of us breaking this, the you know, there was a, it involved a player who had transferred from Boise to Baylor and then committed sexual assault at Baylor. And the athletic directors of the Big 12 conference that Baylor is a part of met the next week and changed the transfer rule. Um, what that will look like practically on the ground is another thing. Um, you know, there's lots of ways for teams to get around rules. We know that too well. But like, you know, people made noise and they told Baylor that they cared and they told the Big 12 that they weren't happy. And there was enough of it that within less than a week, the transfer rule had changed from the story breaking. So, you know, that's my silver lining. Um, I think it can be frustrating to sound, to feel like you are this big story and it changed one rule and hopefully that prevents future tragedy but that is a big deal you know changing one rule by writing a story about it is is a really big deal and so I'm wondering how as a fan of football you feel about being critical of football is there ever a time when you feel like you know it's it's being unsupportive of the sport that you love to call it out no but I don't think that ever about um (laughs) this kind of cultural criticism right um I guess what am I doing if I Uh, with my life if I felt otherwise I would rather just be better I would rather not have a list of victims that I think about every single day I sort of have this I mean I've worked with certain survivors and I've told certain survivor stories and and I think about them a lot right um and I wish that that wasn't part of my sports viewing uh experience and so you know, and, and on some level that sounds kind of selfish, like, poor me, but I just mean just generally, like, I want the sport to be better. Like, I want, I, one of the reasons that I like to watch tennis, which is my favorite thing to watch, is that that aspect isn't there, right? But then I watch and I am acutely aware of sort of the racism that Serena Williams faces every time she gets on the court. But, you know, it's like none of it's perfect. Um, it's just sort of, what you can manage and in all of those cases I want them all to be better like I want I want to have a fan viewing experience that isn't sort of tainted by these things that seem fixable to me that seem like they could be better if people cared enough to do anything about it was writer Jessica Luther. Keep an eye out for her book on sports and violence next year. In the meantime, you can join her 18,000 followers on Twitter at SCATX. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Just a brief pause here to note that this show is made by the team here at Bitch Media. We're an independent feminist media nonprofit, and we're reader and listener supported. So if you like this show, help us grow. 
head over to bitchmedia.org and make a donation. Did you know that if you make a donation of $25 or more, your name is published in the next print issue of Bitch Magazine, right there on the page of donors. It's like an honor roll of fabulous feminists. The current print issue lists someone who donated in honor of the podcasts, which I love. Way to warm my heart and make me cry. So, bitchmedia.org. Donate. Help us make feminist media. Oh, also, a big way to support this show is to rate us in iTunes. We have 95 reviews right now on iTunes. Can we take it to 100? If even five listeners go and open up iTunes and rate us, we'll have 100 reviews. Whew. That feels like a big deal. Maybe I just like round numbers. Maybe I'm secretly competitive. Okay, back to the show. All right, today's show is called Why We Love Sports. Bitch Media Associate Editor Amy Lamb has this story on activist athletes. I love the NBA. Mostly, I love the NBA because I love the players. Obviously, right? What I mean is that I don't watch professional basketball to obsess over stats or rankings or the particular art of a beautiful play. Those parts of the games are fun to think about, but what I love most is getting to know the players, who they are off the court. I follow NBA players on Instagram. I read stories about where they grew up. I watch all the cheesy interview segments about their childhoods. If I'm lucky, if I'm really lucky, my favorite players like Damian Lillard, Patty Mills, or Russell Westbrook participate in one of those corny shows where we get to take a tour of their home and we get to see the insides of their closets and the inevitable wall of sneakers. These are my favorite shoe period to play in. You know, they're so, they're so light, like a running shoe. On these behind-the-scenes, day-in-the-life segments, all the players, honestly, seem kind of boring. That's by design. Team owners want athletes to just do their work. They don't want players to be overly opinionated about anything, especially anything controversial. They want players to make money, not talk politics. But there is a strong history of athletes who are also activists, like Muhammad Ali and Billie Jean King. These days, professional athletes tend to stay mum about important issues. There is a lot at stake for these players, potentially millions of dollars on the line if they were to speak out about something controversial. They could lose endorsement deals, be fined by their league for speaking out of turn, or worse, get cut from their teams for being a, quote, distraction. The dreaded distraction. Take the case of linebacker Brian Iambadejo, who was with the Baltimore Ravens. Ian Badejo is an outspoken advocate for LGBTQ equality. In 2012, a member of the Maryland legislature sent a letter to the Ravens demanding that they rein him in and to, quote, concentrate on football and steer clear of dividing the fan base. Sure, the Ravens didn't heed the request to silence Ian Badejo, but he was released from the team at the end of the season. Not all players who take a stand face repercussions. After the murder of Trayvon Martin, it was a big news item when Miami Heat's franchise star player, Dwayne Wade, appeared on the cover of Ebony with his two young sons, all of them in gray hoodies with We Are Trayvon splashed across them. And six months after the homicide of Eric Garner, a grand jury decided not to indict the officer who choked him to death. While people marched through the streets demanding justice after a lack of indictment, some NBA players staged their own simple protest. During warm-ups before games, prominent players wore t-shirts that said, I can't breathe across them. Those were the last words spoken by Garner as he died. 
After those t-shirts appeared on national TV, some critics questioned whether the players should be fined for wearing non-warm-up gear. But the NBA commissioner decided not to punish the players, though he said that he would prefer for the players to stick with their regular gear, he respected that they wanted to express themselves on an important issue. Oftentimes we think of professional athletes as people who are jocks, people with brawny bodies who get paid lots of money for their physical talents. There isn't an expectation that they may have smart, incisive opinions and ideas. But when I saw Dwayne Wade and his sons in those hoodies, or LeBron James in an I Can't Breathe t-shirt, it was a stark reminder that their money and their celebrity status may not protect them in a country where white supremacy is part of our institutions. They're untouchable on the court, but there are ranks of law enforcement who have no qualms about violence against people of color, particularly unarmed black and brown folks. The New York Police Department has launched an internal affairs investigation into the arrest of NBA player Tabo Sabalosha who claims police used excessive force during a violent incident last week. At the end of the last NBA season, Thabo Sabalosha of the Atlanta Hawks missed the playoffs. The playoffs, where his team advanced to the Eastern Conference Finals. Why did he miss the playoffs? Well, Sabalosha had to sit out these games because during a trip to New York City, he and a couple other athletes had an altercation with the NYPD that resulted in his leg getting fractured at the hands of police officers. But there was barely a peep about it in the sports news world. In a piece for The Nation, writer David Zirin concluded that the sports news world can be self-censoring when it comes to possibly controversial topics. Many people are clearly not comfortable with athletes making a stand. Team owners, Maryland legislatures, and reporters alike. But these are the moments where we see who athletes really are. These moments of political action are not the cheesy can segments, though I love them, about their inspirational childhoods and mammoth mansions. In these actions, our star athletes show us what they really believe, and they show me a person to root for. Last month, I went to a soccer game. No big deal, right? Very big deal. The National Women's Soccer League game that I attended between the Portland Thorns and the Seattle Reign happened right after the World Cup. The place was packed. Or, in the words of National Women's Soccer League commentator Ann Schatz, History will be made tonight in Portland, Oregon. Over 21,000 fans will jam Providence Park for the latest edition of the Cascadia rivalry between the Thorns and Seattle Reign. The sellout will be a new NWSL attendance record. That's right, 21,000 people came to see the game. The biggest crowd ever to turn out for an American National Women's Soccer League match. And the fans were pumped. Some of them are waving flags for the Seattle rain. Many of them are waving flags for the Portland Thorns. But also in the crowd were flags that you don't often see at a pro sports event, rainbow pride flags. While sports are often rife with homophobia, women's soccer is filled with out queer players. And in the bleachers are many, many queer fans. Portland Thorns midfielder Sarah Huffman who is now retired from the team, but whose World Cup smooch with her wife Abby Wambach went viral over the summer, 
talked about the importance of seeing those rainbow flags in the crowd during a 2014 interview with the Oregonian. But it's nice. I mean, I think every day, whether it's or in the Timbers game or in our games, there's flags up in support and just those little things, just to know the communities behind you, the fans are behind you and they support you. Um, it's really, it's a kind of indescribable feeling. So why is women's soccer such a welcoming place for queer fans and athletes? There's no one better to talk about this question than Steph Yang, a hardcore soccer fan who has written about LGBT identity and the National Women's Soccer League for Bitch. I called up Steph at her home in Boston. All right, Steph, let's start out with um, you giving a shout out to any of your favorite teams. What teams are you a big fan of that uh, you want everyone to know about? Right now, I guess it's just the one. It's the Boston Breakers who play in NWSL. They're going through a really interesting time. They just, um, their last coach just resigned and they just hired a new one from England coming from Liverpool Ladies. So yeah, who knows? He's probably going to fire half the roster. So we're all kind of on pins and needles waiting for the hammer to drop. <laughs> Maybe a hard time to be a Boston Breakers fan. Yeah, an interesting time anyway. All right, Steph. Well, today we're going to talk specifically about sort of homophobia in sports and how women's soccer uh, has a real different approach to queer fans and queer players than you see in a lot of sports. Um, so sports across the board have a reputation for being a breeding ground of homophobia, and the first international study of gay athletes ever came out this summer. It surveyed 9,500 people in English-speaking countries, and the results were not good. 78% of athletes said that youth sports are unsafe for lesbian, gay, and bi people. 83% said that fans are likely to be targeted uh, if they're gay, lesbian, or bi. So I want to talk to you about your your ideas about how women's soccer is approaching this differently. What is it like um, for queer fans and queer players in, in women's soccer? It's changing. It's changed really rapidly, I'd say, in the last five or so years. Um, I think kind of a, the jumping off point might have been when Megan Rapinoe came out as openly gay. Before that, there had been queer women in women's soccer. Um, Natasha Kai came out, I think, in 2008. She just kind of offhandedly mentioned, yeah, my girlfriend, so-and-so. But there wasn't as much of a big to-do about it, and I think part of it was at the time U.S. soccer wasn't super ready to deal with an out gay athlete, um, and kind of American society wasn't either. But fast forward to 2012, and then, you know, Megan Rapinoe's getting recognized, getting awards, stuff like that. So... Is women's soccer doing something different to be encouraging of queer players and queer fans? Why why are women more able and safe to come out as players in national women's soccer than in other sports? Firstly, I think just by the act of being a women's sport, it's kind of subversive, a popular women's sport at that, because ever since the, the national team started winning and winning big, it started getting momentum and money, and it's kind of hard to argue with money in America. Um so by just being a women's sport, you're already intruding on an area where men have established a ton of dominance. But with women's sport, especially in America, women's soccer has grown by such leaps and bounds. And, you know, they've traditionally always done better than the men have in international competitions because of a bunch of factors, which I won't get into here. But so it's it's women's sport, but it's popular. So it creates this space where women who are fans of something 
something subversive suddenly find themselves a fan of something that's that's big and it gives them a voice so i think it attracts people who aren't necessarily invited into majority spaces so if you could go to this thing and it was safe for you to like and you could find other people like you who enjoyed it it's not like going to an nfl game where there's probably going to be a lot of cis straight guys who have some gross opinions about women because you know they're in a very macho um, masculine catering atmosphere well so that's interesting so the fact that women's soccer started out with a smaller fan base in some ways let let it be sort of an open ground for new fans to establish themselves and feel safe there because it wasn't something that was already dominated by a specific tradition a specific culture that's a bunch of dudes yeah it was a new place it was kind of unexplored it's like when you find this beautiful new island you get to um you know plant your flag and kind of make it your own so they were able to kind of shape it from the beginning and as it grew um i don't think they were forced out they just kind of you know more and more queer women came to the game instead of the original queer fans being forced out by growing popularity which is great So one thing I've been really struck by whenever I go to um, women's soccer games is not only that there's a large queer fan base in the audience, but there's really uh, very out messaging. Do you feel like the National Women's Soccer League has been encouraging of its queer fan base and queer players, or is this happening without any kind of institutional support uh, at all from the National Women's Soccer League and from the people who buy ads there? I think league-wide there's kind of a tacit sanctioning because the NWSL is essentially an arm of U.S. soccer and it would be really crappy of U.S. soccer not to at least be okay with this when they're touting out athletes like Abby Wambach and Megan Rapino as their heroes. Like, they structure so much of their advertising around Abby Wambach that it would be so hypocritical of them not to acknowledge her as a human being who happens to be queer. So, on that broad level, there's at the very least tacit acceptance of this. There's not going to be any top-down mandate that's like, get those rainbow flags out of there. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the number of out male athletes in any professional sport in the United States can be counted on one hand. And there's one one gay male athlete uh, in, in men's soccer, that's Robbie Rogers of the LA Galaxy. But typically, male athletes don't come out or they come out in their last season, right before they're about to retire or when they do retire. So you're really drawing a distinction between those sports and women's soccer where some of the biggest stars on the field, the women who are the faces of the World Cup, like Abby Wambach and Megan Rapino, are out players. Yeah, I think anybody who is familiar with um, the world would, if they think about that for a minute, go, yeah, that makes sense to me. Because in men's sports, which is you know, considered to be the ultimate pinnacle of manliness if you're a pro athlete, that manliness, excuse me, that manliness is so incompatible with being queer, right, to the majority of the world. Um, To be a queer man means to not actually be a quote-unquote man. You've given up your masculinity because you might not be attracted to uh, cis women. Um, But for women, for what one reason or another, women's sexuality has never been as rigidly constrained. Obviously, women have been 
you know, their their bodies and their interests are often the target of legislation, but just in the general consciousness, like the zeitgeist of a population, I think women's sexuality um, is allowed to have a little more leeway. Well, it's interesting how this plays out in reports of homophobia in sports. I want to harken back to that survey I was talking about, the the first international study of gay athletes, which came out earlier this year. It's called Out in the Field. And I asked um, thousands of athletes if they'd ever received harassment, slurs about their sexuality. And the stats are pretty interesting. It's that among um, gay, lesbian, and bi men and women, 84% of men and 82% of women had received verbal slurs about their sexuality. So, you know, people throwing really nasty words at them. But male players were far more likely to be physically threatened and assaulted for their sexuality, whereas female players uh, were less, were far less likely to be. So there's this threat of physical violence facing gay male players that is still very real, but um, but less of a looming danger for female players, the stats show. Yeah, and I think that kind of tracks with how men and women are raised socially. Men um, are f- encouraged far more to go into confrontations and be physical, whereas women, women's confrontations are uh, kind of channeled more towards being emotional or verbal. I mean, just as nasty, if you've ever had you know, a bully in school, the right female bully can just pick you apart with a couple of sentences, but yeah, I think that's due to more of a an overarching socialization problem than anything super related to sports. And I think for men, it's exacerbated by being in that that sports atmosphere where they're encouraged to use physical expression as their outlet. And you just mentioned, so you're you're a visibly queer person. How does it feel different for you being in the stands of a of a women's soccer? game versus the stands of another sports game where you're maybe cheering just as hard. I think it's not even on the level of being queer, just being a female presenting where there's just so many more women in the audience, so many more. So one thing that really gets to me about the homophobia in sports is that it seems like it should be a top priority for people who want to sell tickets to make sports a safe place for all people to go to you know queer fans are some of the most hardcore fans of women's soccer they buy the tickets they buy the shirts um i wonder what other leagues can learn from the nwsl about uh encouraging a queer fan base in their for their own interests i mean they're missing out on on a fan base here on people who want to who love sports who want to go buy tickets I think what makes so many of them hesitant is they don't want to rely on this because they think queer fan bases are niche. And to some extent, just in terms of percentage of population, they kind of are. Um, Teams want to appeal to that like 18 to 50 year old male demographic because they're kind of stuck in the past and they don't respect the the power of women's dollars. I don't necessarily know that NWSL is super capitalizing on this either. Right now, they're at the level of they're actively okay with it. But I'm not super sure that they're pursuing this as aggressively as they could. I think a great example to look at is actually the WNBA. Um, The WNBA is now actively marketing to LGBT audiences. And they, you know, when it came out that this was what they were going to be doing as an active marketing strategy, they released a statement saying, 
just because we advertise to LGBT fans doesn't mean we're going to lose other fans. Like, they don't displace parts of our audience. They're just a, a good addition to our audience. Well, let's finish up with you telling us some sort of beautiful sports moment. Can you, <laughs> can you, can you recall a favorite moment um, from the Boston Breakers to regale us with? This is going to be really depressing, but the team has had two losing seasons in a row. Um, so I think uh, last season they had a home game to close things out, and even though they had no chance of making playoffs because they were second to last in the league, they still fought really hard at home, knowing it was their last game of the season, and they managed to pull out a win for us, the fans, and I think there's nothing on the line. It was just pride and doing it for the fans, and they did it. And it's kind of a sad story when I think about it, but it's all we've had in the past two years. That was writer Steph Yang. Steph co-hosts a podcast all about women's soccer. It's called Two Drunk Fans. Go look it up. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today's show is all about why we love sports. At its most basic level, our feelings about sports are personal. Sports tie into our identities, the way we grew up, and our families. I wanted to wind down today's show with thoughts on family fandom, people's personal relationship to sports within their families. We have four very short stories for you about how our families shape our ideas of sports. Uh, so my name is Kirsten Kelly. I'm an editorial intern at Bitch, and I grew up in a very small town in California, which actually happens to be the same small town as my dad. When my dad was in high school, he was the captain of the basketball team, and my mom was the captain of Letter Girls, which was her high school's version of cheerleaders, which she was only involved with because at that time, they wouldn't let her play more aggressive sports. Like, she seriously loves football. It's a little crazy. Um, I actually remember one time when the Kings were playing the Lakers and they lost um, the championships. My dad, like, laid down on the floor and had a full-blown temper tantrum. Yeah, I don't do sports at all. Um, you know, I, I like to go outside and I like to ride horses and I like to ski. And those are all athletic, but they're not sports in in the classic sense of the term. Um, So when I was growing up, that was actually a little bit of a challenge for my family because my mom especially couldn't understand why I didn't want to compete and why I didn't like to play with like balls made of rubber. (laughs) Um, And, you know, she was really encouraging me to try all of these different things. So I, I tried out for volleyball and I tried out for basketball and I never made it past the first cut um, because at 24 years old I still actually trip over my feet because I'm not sure how big they are Um, and that's pretty much been the story of my life and honestly you know when I did play um, some of the local league sports and stuff it wasn't 
it wasn't something I really enjoyed. It really felt like and, and still feels like a chore. But most of the time when we're watching games, I actually don't know what the rules are. Um, so people start yelling and I go, yay, along with them, but I actually have no idea. Um, I think they're learning that like I don't, you know, and just because I don't do sports doesn't mean I'm not competitive or assertive or willing to stand up for myself. Um, so as a writer, you know, I get a lot of hate online. And um, I haven't let that stop me. And I've gotten a lot of rejection because when you're a writer, that's how things go. And I just keep going. And I think that they're really proud that I've been able to just keep going on. Um, and that I haven't really, I think they're relieved to see that I didn't need sports to teach me how to, how to stand up for myself and how to get into the game. Kristen Rogers Brown, uh, celebrity art director, a bitch, and I feel like I'm making a confession. I am a Chicago Cubs fan, um, <laughs> and I was born into it. I um, I grew up outside of Chicago, on in the south suburbs of Chicago. My mom passed away about ten years ago, and um, one of my f like sort of fondest, I guess, memories of my mom is uh, I remember finding out she had cancer and um, passed away about 10 years ago. And when she really found out that it was kind of the last stretch of it, um, one of her sort of rants and complaints <laughs> that she had was that, oh my God, I'm never going to see the Cubs win in my lifetime. And it was sort of like, dude, these guys better get it together. <laughs> um, and she actually said, because her dad used to take her to games when she was growing up, she was like, man, my dad didn't even see him win. Like, no, I didn't, I'm not going to see him win. I hope maybe you'll get to see him win. It was very long-suffering. And, like, we all kind of rolled our eyes, but we were all kind of like, oh, shit. That really sucks. <laughs> um, like hoping that the Cubs can win a World Series before she dies. Yeah. But, I mean, it's the Cubs. They're, like, kind of cursed. We were all kind of like, yeah, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, it could have been. It, this was not like you're going to die in a minute. You know, this was like, oh, you have cancer. It could be years. They're probably not going to win. So, all these years later, I am still a Cubs fan, and again, I feel like I'm confessing something here. Um, I've lived outside of Chicago since I was about 18, so it's been sort of hidden in various um, cities. And uh, I think my sister and I carry on her superstitions. My sister lives in New York. She promised my mom that she would never set foot in the Mets Stadium in New York. I don't know if she's carried that on or not. But um, one thing that I'm embarrassed and a little afraid to say out loud, maybe not embarrassed, but I'm afraid to say out loud, is that I've actually never been to a game where the Cubs lost in person. And um, by saying that out loud, I hope that maybe the Cubs would offer me season tickets so that they would win, but that might not happen. I've been to a lot of games.
Chicago resident Veronica Ariola hosts a really interesting Facebook page. It's called, I Pledge to Attend One Women's Sports Event This Year. I talked to Veronica and her 12-year-old daughter about their relationship to sports and their love of sports as a family. So can you tell me about your guys' project to um, see to, to encourage people to see at least one women's sporting event in a year and how it got started? Um, it got started, oh wow, I totally forgot. I think it was like 2008, um, 2010. Uh, it was during one of the Winter Olympics. And I was noticing how, again, during the Olympics, uh, women's sporting uh, events and sport athletes, women athletes got a lot of attention and were praised in the media about being strong and that their feats were amazing and people should watch, etc., etc. But I knew that as soon as the Olympics faded and the torch would be extinguished, that people would go back to ignoring women's sports. So I decided to create this Facebook page because that's where you can do things like this um, and just challenge people to attend one women's sporting event a year. How do you feel about your mom's project? Do you think it's pretty cool or do you feel like, what's the point? I go see tons of women's sports. I think it's pretty cool because while I know that we go to a lot of women's sports, I do realize that there aren't as many people in the audience as there are as if we go, as when we go to men's sports. And I think that's a problem because they're just as good and sometimes even better because they win more. And it's just, it's really good what she's doing because I think they deserve a much better audience. So, so both of you, what's your all-time favorite team to go watch play? Um, well, my favorite all-time team is the National Women's Soccer Team. Um, I look up to them so much. So it's really cool whenever I get to see them play, which is why I absolutely love the experience of going to the um, World Cup this past summer. And it's probably one of the best games I've ever seen. But... I really like seeing them as well as the Chicago Red Stars, which is the soccer team for our city. Um, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I really, one of my favorite experiences was a few years ago, we took um, Elizabeth's Girl Scout team, Girl Scout troop to a Chicago Sky game, which is our WNBA team. And it was a family event and watching all these new families experience the sky for the first time is always great for me uh, to, to watch, but especially watching all the little brothers getting really into the game uh, because I think in some of the conversation about the lack of support for women's sports, people talk about boys and men not wanting to watch women compete, but once you get men or women into a stadium watching athletes, whether they're men or women, they totally love it. Do you want to play in the World Cup someday? Oh, it's my dream. <laughs> story, we're going to hear from someone who's a big part of this show, but we never have on the air, our producer, Alex Ward. Hi, Alex. Hello. You are usually behind the scenes on this show. You're the person who helps record interviews and get all of our audio levels right. You're the one who makes me sound good. It's not that hard. You sound great, Sarah. Ah, oh, geez. That's way too nice. <laughs> 
But okay, so when I talked to you about this week's show theme and the family sports stories, you said, oh man, I have to talk to my dad. Can you tell us a little bit about your dad? Yeah, I wanted to talk to my dad um, because he, like me, he grew up playing sports from a very young age, uh, starting with baseball and that football and basketball. So he kind of was a three-sport athlete into high school. Um, but then I never really heard about that a lot. What I heard, did hear a lot about was him being a cheerleader his senior year in high school when he quit the football team and he joined the rally squad. Um, and I remember talking to him about that as a kid and thinking, I wanted to know, A, why that transition happened. From and football star to cheerleader. From I, I doubt he was a star. But, uh, <laughs> I was trying to be nice. I was yes, trying to be nice. No, that's fine. But going from, uh, going from on the field to off the field and then sort of what butterfly effect that had in his life. Great. Well, let's listen to your interview. I played uh, baseball for many years on a Little League team. And then when I got into middle school, I played football, basketball, and track. Pretty much, uh, pretty much whenever, whenever there was a tryout, I was, I was going to it, yeah. So then what happened in your senior year? So I was playing football. I enjoyed it. In, in my senior year, we had summer uh, we, we started summer training, summer practices. And what went on there changed my attitude about football. I guess you could call it old school um, coaching, where there was a lot of coaching, motivation by degradation. And a lot of it was, you know, they would call you a pussy. They'd say, oh, you're hitting like a girl. And they'd, they'd, you know, chew you out. And I don't know, maybe that goes on today. But I was, uh, I was helping the coaches in the summer um, work with some ninth graders. And I saw a coach who I didn't like. He was paramilitary. And he chewed this kid out and called him a pussy and kicked him and made him do push-ups and put his uh, you know, foot on the guy's back. Basically, this guy was taking out his own internal aggression and his demons on this kid, and this kid was crying, and it affected me so much. I said, I don't want to be a part of this. And I remember walking away from um, football practice. I, I took off my um, I took off my football spikes. I set them on the bench, and I said, I'm out of here. And uh, I left. Um, I left organized sports at that time. It was just mean-spirited cruelty, as if you can have loving cruelty. <laughs> but that was it. And then you transitioned from on the field to off the field. So Correct. talk me through that transition. So um, all of a sudden, I had taken away my identity as an athlete. Um, and I didn't realize that was going to uh, leave such a hole in my life. And so um, a friend of mine, right when school started, he had said, hey, I'm thinking about trying out for the rally squad. Do you want to do it? I don't want to do it alone. Would you be interested? This was a good friend of mine. And uh, I said, God, what a great idea. His his motive was because he had a terrible crush or a fantastic crush on a girl, cute girl, who was going to try out for Rally Squad, he thought if he got elected, which of course he would, because 
man on the rally squad was not cool. He was cool. I was cool. We thought, let's do it. You thought you were cool. Yeah, I thought I was cool. But it was hard to be cool when you're on the rally squad just because it, you know, when you go from being an athlete. So I said, what could it hurt? And of course, we got elected. And I had friends who were on the football team. So our first game, I was getting tremendous. My friend and I, who both knew a lot of people on the football team, we got really, really great acceptance. And we were out there and it was so supercharged. And I found that that was so much more, um, so much more invigorating. You know, I, I was just on stage, you know, and I got to go to all the away games. Um, ironically, that year that I was on the rally squad, the football team um, took the, uh, state championship, the best team in the state. So I was able to be a part of that. And I didn't have to worry about sitting on the bench, which I probably would have. Um, I was right on the field with them. And uh, it was so much fun. You were very outgoing. You are very outgoing. I know this about you. I inherited this from you. Uh, and you felt like you were on stage. So what effect did that have on your, your career <laughs> going forward? <laughs> Uh, if you are an extrovert, like I am, and you are, there's something satisfying about being able to uh, have an effect on a crowd in a positive way. And I was having a lot more success than that. I'm doing that on the sidelines as a rally squad than I did if I was playing football. And it led to my a shift in my lifestyle, my senior year, uh, in the spring, I also auditioned for a theater production, which I never would have done. Athletes and drama kids were way, way on the each end of the spectrum. I got involved with theater. Um, I ended up becoming um, a theater major in college, and uh, I found my tribe. Yeah. You know... I love sports. I love watching it. I love playing it. But maybe you can agree with me or not that when it really becomes, when sports become so serious that winning and losing is everything and your performance on the field or, or in, you know, in the gym becomes so serious and there's so many consequences of it, um, that wasn't fun to me. You make a mistake and it could be just as simple as missing a block or missing a tackle or, um, you know, somebody in the secondary getting by you. Or in basketball, if you, you know, had a turnover, you're taken out of the game. Shame and humiliation. The rest of the team is, and the, and the crowd is, uh, you know, resentful that the game could have gone a different way if you didn't screw up. I didn't like that. Too much pressure, and I never felt that. I mean, when, when I was in a play, the most I had to worry about was remembering my entrances and remembering my lines, but it wasn't like they were going to pull me off the stage and chew me out. What a weird theater program that would be. Yes. We're putting in your understudy. Get out of here, Ward. <laughs> Thank you.
Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening.